Now please follow me as we read the scripture accompanying today's message, which is from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bailey, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when it comes to the job uh, of being president, <clears throat> any historian will tell you that there's usually a lot of significance placed on the first 100 days of that person's presidency. Turns out our fixation with this comes from a French practice known as the sans jour. Uh, that demarcated the time between Napoleon's uh, return from exile and his defeat in Waterloo. In America, it's mostly associated with FDR and his swift action in 1933 to uh, calm the nation's crippling financial panic associated with the Great Depression. And so since that time, every president really gets preoccupied with their first 100 days. JFK, of course, in his first 100 days, invaded Cuba in the famous Bay of Pigs incident. Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon in the first 100 days after the Watergate uh, uh, scandal of 1974. Ronald Reagan announced the release of the uh, Iranian hostages in his first 100 days. The point is, presidents are well aware of this, which means they pay a lot of attention to what goes on during that time in office. And the reason why is, of course, because those days are thought to be the pace-setting season where you epitomize your time in office with your ability to lead well. It sets the tone for where you believe the country is going next. Okay, so King David has just ascended the throne of Saul. It's been a bit of a rocky, rocky start to his reign. But now he's ready to set the tone for what his leadership is going to be. And his first official act is to retrieve this rather smallish golden worship box and bring it back into the capital's worship center. In other words, King David decides that the first major policy he's going to introduce is to bring the great Ark of the Covenant back up into the tabernacle that David has set up in the center of Jerusalem. Now, my question is this. 
Why? Well, I think David understands that by this time, the ark had taken on this massive cultural significance to the Jewish people. We know, first of all, the Jewish people understood the ark as, a, as an edifice of guidance. You know, the glory cloud for Moses when it came down would literally guide the children of Israel by day a cloud, by night a ball of fire. In other words, the ark was almost always placed at the front of the travel lines that led them to the promised land. In other words, the presence of God was literally what showed you where to go in life. We also know, secondly, though, that the ark was associated with the divine warrior. This idea that the promised land, when we would enter, that great military leader, Joshua, he first conquers Jericho. It's a miraculous victory, of course, because as soon as the trumpets sound, the walls like uh, spontaneously start to fall. But guess what was leading them? The Ark of the Covenant. That's what stuck with them. Even as far as the book of Revelation chapter 11, the Ark shows up again as the creation convulses uh, with the appearance of King Jesus. And so the genius of David's decision to bring the ark in is that he knows the associations that his people have with this symbol. And he knows that in order to reign with effectiveness, he needs more than anything else to have the presence of God in their midst. That was the secret. In Exodus 25, God says to Moses, I will speak to you over the ark. It's where, God, it's where you hear from God is in his presence. In Deuteronomy 4, he speaks of the presence of God as the very thing that brought them out of Egypt. In other words, his presence was the place of great strength. Numbers 11 says that his presence is what defeats all of their enemies. Nothing greater than the presence of God could he have asked for. So here's the question. Why then did this end so poorly? We read it. We see exactly what's going on. I'm starting this morning a two-part series on David's relationship with the presence of God, but you have to realize before we begin that David's experience with the ark is fraught with danger. And all the lessons that he learns, though, in that moment, I think are completely timeless and applicable to us today. So two simple points. I want to look, first of all, at the need for the presence, but then secondly, the problem with the presence. Let's look, first of all, at that need. Look in verses 1 for 5, you get David who gathers this huge number of people to, for, to form this parade of pageantry, if you will, to bring the ark back to Mount Zion where he has the tabernacle pitch. Builds a new cart for it, right? He finds a couple of uh, leaders from the youth group, Uzzah and Ahio, who are going to lead the parade, stand alongside it. Of course, as they go along, you can imagine there was probably noise and, and music and singing and dancing. Probably a parade that would have given the Grove a run for its money on Saturdays. Now look, we all know how horribly wrong this is going to go in just a few moments. But don't let, that let you miss what these first verses are trying to say because David has a passion for this thing. In other words, David is saying the ark of God is my first priority. And so having the symbolic presence of God, he's saying, was the fundamental need not only of David's heart, but what he knew the rest of the people of Israel needed. You get this very intimate picture of David's passion for the ark in Psalm chapter 16. It's an amazing psalm. In verse 8, David says this. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will never be shaken. 
That's the confidence that David drew from the presence of God. So what he's done is he has in his imagination, in his mind's eye, he has the Lord right beside him at all times. Later on in verse 11 of of Psalm 16, he says this. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. (laughs) And then he says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. What in the world could he be talking about? What he's saying is, is he's saying all of my longings in life, everything that comes out of me as it pertains to my desires, all of it has been found as I have walked with God together like I walk with a close friend. That's what he's found. I I don't think it's too much to say David lusted for the presence of God. I mean, this whole story actually is told a second time in 1 Chronicles. And in that particular version of the text, it records a song that David sang when the ark finally made it to its proper dwelling place, the chorus of which goes like this. Strength and joy are in this place. David knew that his only hope in life was to have a living, breathing access to the very presence of God. And please understand for a moment, because I do think we have a tendency to write these things off because that was the Old Testament and David was just religious like that. That's why we put his story in the Bible, because he was just religious. But that's not the case. God was just as invisible to David's eyes as he is now. But David looks and understands that this ark must be here because that is the symbol. I know that I need this. We look back and we think, well, it was easy for him. They had these dramatic manifestations of the presence of God. But that's not the case either, right? Those things that look like distant myths to us and the questions that we ask about what we do now have something very profound to teach us about the presence of God. And I think it's simply this, that this desire for God to be present, for him to be near you, that is the desire between every other desire that you have. That is, the need behind every need. When you experience any need in your life, what you are really sensing at the core of your spiritual nature, what the Bible will call your inner world, is a need for the presence of God. Take a moment. Relay for yourself the greatest needs in your life. You have a need for a a comfortable and a peaceful home. You have a need for a rewarding job that doesn't humiliate you every week. You have a need for some acknowledgement in life that I'm, that I'm doing my life right. You have a need for a healing of an old relational wound that your mind still drifts to when it doesn't have anything else to think about. It doesn't matter what you put in the blank of that question because the Bible's blueprint of your soul traces every one of those things back to the needs and the desires that can ultimately only be fulfilled in a walking, talking, interactive, relational walk with God. He is the one who is the need behind every other need that you have. The point is that God has created human beings to know him, chief among them all. St. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. 
In other words, no matter where you focus your life's energies in your quest to be satisfied, they will not arrive as much until, you are, until that satisfaction has terminated in him. That's the need behind every other need. And the only place where we can actually find satisfaction. David says that there's pleasures forevermore. We're going to preach. I've already decided. We're preaching on Psalm 16 uh, for Easter this year. So come back for that one because I'm dying to know what he means by that. But here's the deal. When you frame it this way, by the way, this is how you also understand what's gone wrong in your life. Because man's biggest problem is that we've taken things that were supposed to be pointers to God and we've made those things themselves the terminal point. God calls them idols. And idols are anything that you use to ground your identity in something other than the knowledge of God. And of course, an idol, like we say many times here, can be anything. Be spouse or children, career, pursuits, marriages, whatever. But David is indirectly showing us that the tragedy of our idols is whatever I base my life upon other than God is ultimately not only not going to satisfy me, but not even get me the thing that I'm idolizing. But for this reason, the, the knowledge of God is the ultimate goal in life. For every person who calls themselves a Christian, every event in your life as a believer has as its ultimate purpose to get you to know God better. Whatever may happen to you, you can stay, you can say with certainty that when it all comes down to it, God is just teaching me more of himself and more of myself in turn. So David had a need for the presence of God. Secondly, though, there is a problem with the presence. Because what I want you to draw from that last point is simply this. David is desiring a good thing. That's a good thing for him to want in pursuit of the ark. How then do you explain what, how horribly this goes? I mean, we got this huge parade. Everybody's dancing. Everybody's celebrating. We got a new cart to put the ark on. We got the two youth group members that are walking alongside it. But along the way, it's, the text says the oxen stumbled. Who knows why? Maybe it hit a pothole or something. But the, but the cart lurches and it totters the ark. Well, no worries. There's Uzzah there to reach it, grab it, settle it. But the second that he does, the hammer falls. Look at verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died beside the ark of God. Oof. Can you imagine that scene? People sort of slowly kind of backing away from this thing, not exactly knowing what it is that they brought inside their midst. So look, let's ask the first most obvious question. What happened? What went wrong? Well, the simple answer is this. Well, when God gave directions for how the ark was to be built, he also gave directions for how it was to be transported. Lots of instructions. The first thing God told Moses was he was supposed to put four rings on either side of this box, and there were poles that were supposed to go through the rings in order to carry it. So they were never to be taken out. Not only that, the ark itself was only supposed to be moved by the Levites, this special tribe descended from Moses himself. And when they did move it, they had to go through this days-long process of consecration before they ever came near the thing. And then finally, the thing that was the most important was, is that thing when it was going to be moved by these, uh, by these particular uh, uh, people, they had nothing to do with a cart, and they certainly weren't supposed to touch it, ever. So let's be clear. David broke all the rules. No Poles, no, us in Ohio, we are not Levites. We don't know what the deal was with the new cart. Um, and Uzzah touched it. He broke all the rules. Now here's my question. How satisfying an answer is that to you? 
for why this inherited the death penalty. Look, that's, it's not a satisfactory answer to our world, is it? People look at these stories and they're like, you have got to be kidding me. You claim, Christian, to follow a God who is going to do this? We've got to get rid of this conception of God. Like, it's bad enough that you think God is a God of judgment and punishment. But this is utter capriciousness. So they broke a rule. Who cares? I don't want a God like this. Passages like this in the Bible, quite frankly, were cause I saw for years in campus ministry for students walking away from Christianity. Hmm. But I wonder if you could this morning suspend that suspicion for just a moment to consider that perhaps, perhaps God was in this event in David's life preparing a great and powerful lesson. A lesson not just for David, but for all of the people about what it was going to mean to ask for his presence in their midst. And what if that lesson goes something like this? Sin is serious. And it's not the kind of thing that can get swept under the metaphysical rug. I think the reason why God exercised this kind of judgment on David is because David actually violated something much deeper than just a casual reading of the text would suggest. Remember, David wants something that's good. He wants to rule before the presence of God, before the face of God, quorum Deo. But to put on a, a parade, a new cart, what that possibly ends up doing is looking like we're sort of fancying things up a little bit so that we can basically, you know, get his favor. That the watching world would look and say, wait a minute, you're turning Yahweh into a God like all the rest of the nations. That is, we put on a little bit of a show, a little bit of pomp, a little bit of circumstance, and then maybe he will show us his kindness by coming and dwelling among us. That's the risk. <laughs> I think the reason why God actually does this particular thing is because he understands that in Christianity alone, you cannot be saved by your works. You've heard us say that phrase on a number of occasions. Because our sin is too serious. David is putting on a show for what the world will look back and say, wow, must be an awfully cranky deity that you serve there. If it took 30,000 men, a big old parade in order to do it. Again, we look and think, if I offer him this, maybe I'll win his favor. Isn't it interesting that it's Uzzah's instinct to reach out and grab the ark? <laughs> you know, Uzzah thought that the dirt that the ark was about to fall into would have made it dirty, but his hands wouldn't have. Look, David and Uzzah are promoting, are at risk of promoting a version of God that has no grasp over the deadliness of sin that doesn't stress how lost you are without grace, that has no conception for God's people of the radical provision that God is going to have to be made before we can ever approach him. David is at risk of performing the actions of a religious insider. I mean, I'm pretty good. We're doing a good job. I'm, it's a new cart. Did you see the new cart? New cart's awesome. So no, I don't think the text tells us that David and Uzzah had really good intentions, but the mean old God came and struck them down. No. The risk in all this is absolutely great. And if Eugene Peterson is right, it's actually something, the risk actually will be deadly to you as a human being. Without a God who is fundamentally motivated by grace and grace alone, 
You are simply managing God with your own set of rules and your own life plan. And what that ends up doing to you is one of three things. So you set up your own rules in life. You set up to your standards for yourself. You live pretty well to those standards. You know what that turns you into? It turns you into someone who is arrogant, someone who's cocky. And you have sown the seeds inside of you of looking down on others who haven't done as well as you. And Christians don't talk like that, right? We don't do that in this place. Why? Because we understand how we've actually come to to God in the first place. Let's imagine a second scenario. Let's say you set up your rules for life and you're doing pretty well at keeping them. But then all of a sudden your life doesn't go the way you think it should. There's There's a sickness. There's a death in the family. There's a job that you wanted and didn't get. Does it go my way? And all of a sudden you realize that I'm sowing the seeds of bitterness and confusion in my heart and even tempted to leave God after all because honestly what I really wanted was not him. I just wanted the good life that he could give me. Second destruction of life. Thirdly though, third possibility is that is you you set up your standards in life and then you fail them, which by the way includes almost all of us. Then in that midst, you're crushed with guilt. You're dejected. And then you walk around living with guilt as the base note of your life, which turns into bitterness. And bitterness is the one thing that keeps our relationships deteriorating. Bitterness against each other. It means we're unlivable with one another. And until that guilt, which is the erosion of relationship at its heart, until that's resolved, there's no hope for healing. Don't you see? It is either a God of complete and utter grace or it's the self-destruction of human beings. That's it. And God knows it. God is looking and trying to keep David from promoting some moody, cranky deity. He's saying, David, I'm not cranky. I am holy. And if you don't wrap your mind around that first, you won't understand grace. Holiness, God's holiness has this way of stripping us, doesn't it? It strips us of anything that we think that we have in our you know, side that will sort of um, push ourselves, that will actually leverage his favor on us. It could be anything, by the way. Religious people are really good at this, if you haven't noticed. You could leverage your prayer life. I prayed. You could leverage your your good life. Well, I'm certainly not like those people. See what we're doing? We're we're putting up the offering, making a little show. I'll get them on my side. I'll make them like me again. I've gotten away from God. Got to do something. A number of years ago, there was an evangelist by the name of George Whitfield who preached a sermon on how Christians can have true peace with God. In the midst of it, he says, there's a contrast between the Christian and the Pharisee. He said, the difference between a Pharisee and a Christian is a Pharisee actually only confesses their sins. He said, but a Christian, he actually confesses his righteousness. I love this. He says, look, the Pharisee only feels bad for the things that they, that they did wrong. But a true Christian begins to repent of the things that he thought he was doing right. All of your righteousness is as filthy rags. Which means a Christian has a deeper sense of urgency in his prayer. Whitfield says, God could condemn you for the best prayer you ever offered up to him. <laughs> your repentance needs to be repented of, he says. I heard one pastor put it this way. He said, said, you may have seen the seriousness of your sin, but have you seen the sinfulness of your seriousness? 
You know, one of my favorite books of all time, uh, I mentioned this actually a couple years ago, I'm sure you remember, um, is a, a Severe Mercy by a guy named Sheldon Van Auken. The book is about a man's love affair with his wife, whose name was Davy. And they started dating when they were pagans, but eventually become Christians through a friendship with none other than C.S. Lewis. Fascinating book. Davy, the wife, was the one who came to Jesus first. One afternoon, she was sitting in a city park reading, and a gentleman that she did not see approached her unprovoked and said something foul and dirty to her. Terrified, she shrieked and ran out of the park back home to her husband. Well, Van Auken said he did what he could to console her, but he suddenly realized that in that moment of grossness, something deeper had happened to her. Davy, his wife, had seen the ugliness of the world. But instead of turning her to despise the world, she actually turned in on herself. She began to suddenly entertain the idea that she, even she, was the one who had provoked the sin in the world, that she was a sinner. All the world fell away today, she would later on write in her diary. Well, at first, Van Auken was incredulous. I mean, how could this perfect creature, my wife, be a sinner? <laughs> she was certainly no such thing. But later on, she would relate a story to him the next day about something that happened a couple years before where she had mocked a soldier who was on his way to war. She had, she had mocked him because he actually had said something to the effect that he was not going to return to church until he was older. And she looked at him and said, huh, so you're not brave enough to stand alone, are you? She began to feel guilt for it. This is what it says in the book. Now her words haunted her. Sin. She knew there was such a thing as plain sin. Not something any psychiatrist could absolve or explain away. Even worse, the sins of omission. She was shaken to the depths, shaken as I've never known her to be. Look, Davy's first encounter with the holiness of God came through an awareness of her sins of omission. Not things that she did, but the good things she left undone. In other words, it wasn't her unrighteousness, but it was her passive righteousness that was rising up and condemning her. But needless to say, that was the preparation that had been done to her coming to Christ. So let me end this way. Every Christian can report a time when they look back and said, all the world fell away today when there were no more excuses when my best efforts were left tainted and I realized I was undone, when I realized I was disintegrating, I'm literally coming apart, when I'm panicked, when I'm fearful. And I realize that's kind of a dark, it's kind of a dark foreboding sense to end this sermon on. But I will say this, it's worth entertaining the thought that maybe one of the reasons why my Christianity has lighted so softly on my life is because I've tried to enter into its truth through some other gate than this one. The gate of the knowledge of the holiness of God and the way in which it works on us. Let me say it this way in closing. Is it possible that some of my present suffering that I'm enduring has a purpose? And it has a purpose of taking all of my doing, all of my scrambling, all of my posturing is trying to lay it down and to set it aside. Just like the old hymn writer would say, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet and stand in him and him alone gloriously complete. That's where this is going. 
Now look, we're going to revisit that laying down next week, so please come back. (laughs) But for now, maybe it's true that we should have some spade work that can be done on our own hearts before we can receive that news with real joy. Maybe? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you lead us to your table this morning as we rise and come forward for comfort in you. May we come so without anything in our hands. Spiritually, Father, you said we have hands. And oftentimes we come with things, idols that we've set up, hoping that maybe we can garner your favor. But this morning we learned that it's all of grace or it's nothing. So we do ask for your grace on us this morning that we might see that anew and that as we come forward and partake of the supper, we would know that indeed you love us because of Christ and it's only in him that we have access into the presence which we were built to know. Would you do that in us? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.